In Psalm 106, it has this text that uh, points us to this uh, Deuteronomy text that we're going to look at today. And it, it says this, The people made a calf at Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot their God, their Savior, who had done such great things in Egypt, such wonderful things in the land of Ham, such awesome deeds at the Red Sea. That's Psalm 106. I want to begin by asking you a difficult question this morning, and it's difficult for a variety of reasons, which we'll get to, but here's the question. How many idols did you bring with you to church this morning? I want us to be thinking about that. I I doubt if anybody brought a golden calf. I don't think anybody's got it on a trailer outside behind your vehicle. I don't think it's out there. So I doubt that it's quite that obvious. Uh, Typically, our idols are a lot more subtle than that, aren't they? But you might have driven it here. You might have just turned it to vibrate before you sat down. Uh, You might be wearing it right now. uh, Or it might even be sitting beside you. Our idols are subtle things. And they're often hard to discern because oftentimes they're really good things. They're even those things that God has given us and blessed us with as gifts that he offers to us with um, his generous grace and allows us and invites us to enjoy and embrace. But then, slowly over time, these good things become ultimate things. And it happens oftentimes slowly. And it's often things that we don't see really easily. It also becomes more difficult when they are things that are not even physical things, but they're things that are deep within the recesses of our heart, where there is fertile soil and, and in the darkness of our, our heart at times, these things can grow and they start to emerge within us and they come out in different ways. They sometimes reveal themselves when we respond to people or maybe when they ask us, so how are you doing today? It might come out then. Maybe it's the things that we complain about. Maybe it's the things that agitate us. Maybe it's the things that actually consume our prayer focus. Maybe it's where our thoughts go when we daydream. And we just have time to sort of reflect on life or the things that we enjoy and so on. And so the question may be an awkward question, but I want it to unsettle us. I want it to challenge us to ask that question, what are the idols that we bring with us? What do they look like? It'd be a lot easier if it was a more obvious thing, if they were blatant things, if they even had a name on it, make a television show about it. Just call it American Idol and remove all doubt. I mean, then it's quite simple right? But it doesn't happen that way, does it? It doesn't appear in those ways in our lives. They don't have labels kind of blazoned across them. So we think, when we think of the golden calf and the story of the people of Israel that we'll look at in just a minute, that we read about, alluded to in Psalm 106, when we think about the golden calf, it, it seems kind of ludicrous. Like it seems like it's something of just a totally different era that we really can't relate to And it's like, why would anybody worship a golden calf? And it just seems way too obvious. And so we think, well, idols don't really relate to us. I mean, it's not really relevant to us because we would never do that. And so how can this make sense to us? But then we we get these gifts of God, these things that God has given us, these treasures, these wonderful things and we start to enjoy them and then they start to consume us and they start to entice us more and more and eventually slowly they actually can start to take the place 
of God in our lives. They're elusive. Idols are continually enticing us to give them more, to give them more of our time, to give them more of our value, to give them more of our attention, to give them more of our focus, more of our heart. John Calvin uh, once said that the human hearts are like an idol factory. Our human hearts are things that continually seem to produce different idols in different ways when they come out in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways in our lives. And so here's the reality that I want us to face today together is that we have every capacity and every tendency to break the first commandment just like the people of Israel did in the story that we will look at. I also want us to see the reality of the anger of God and why it is that it matters. Why it is that these idols are significant to God and God's anger burns against them for the people of Israel. It's the reason why God put it as the first of the, two, of, of the Ten Commandments. The first two relate to this. It says, first of all, you must not have any other God but me, commandment number one, in this covenant relationship with the people of Israel. And then number two, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. So we see the jealousy of God and the passion of God for his people and for loyalty to him alone. And so it's the first two of the Ten Commandments for a reason. It's why Jesus spoke about money so much in the New Testament. And we're going to actually look at that next week as we dive into some chapters in Deuteronomy related to that. But, but Jesus spoke about money so often because he knew it was the primary thing that would contest for our hearts through all generations. Not just in this area, but through all of the centuries. Which is why that is spoken of so much in Scripture. You see, one of the first steps in maturity for all of us is to be able to accept reality and then do something about it. Is to be able to accept the reality of, of who we are and where we are and what it is that we're, we're challenged with, what it is that even maybe our idols are, and then do something about it. It's also a step towards the grace of God. And so we need to do that as individuals. We need to do that as a corporate body, as the church. Do we see ourselves accurately? Do we know our hearts? Do we know the idols that are there within? Or do we just simply deny them and say, well, no, 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 that's, that's really of another era. That's not possible for me. We'll see in the biblical story today how Moses reminds these people of this dark chapter in their story. And we'll see why it is important. Last week, Pastor Harry spoke on the judgment of God. And looking in Deuteronomy about how the character of God, of a holy God, requires in many ways, in fact, this judgment of God that is there. And how this judgment of God is throughout all of Scripture. We see it from the beginning in in Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. But also how God is a God who waits. How God is a God who is patient. Who desire that his people come back to him, to return to him. That God is a God of unbelievable grace, of unmerited favor that he wants to pour out upon his people. Also a theme that we see going through scripture from the very beginning to the very end. The greatest example of which being Jesus Christ. Of God sending his son to die on the cross for our sin. 
by nothing that we deserve, by nothing that we had done, but simply a God who initiates and reconciles. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, we see where it records this truth that the reason that God had given the people the promised land or were giving them the promised land and they were about to enter in was not because of their goodness or anything about them, but it was because of the evil that was there and the people that were in this land. And also it reminds them that, you know what, it's not because of a goodness. In fact, Moses says here, you must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. He says, no, it's because of the weakness of the other nations that he's pushing them out of your way, he says in verse 4. So we see in our text and we see in our lives that God's grace is not because of what we have done. And the people of Israel also needed to realize that they were not set apart by God because they were special. They were set apart by grace of God for something special. They were called for a very specific mission. They were called to take the glory and the goodness of God and the blessing of God to all the nations of the earth. And they often forgot that. We too often forget that. So we're in this series in Deuteronomy called The Gospel According to Moses. And again, to remind us that this is the final message of this leader, Moses, leading the people of Israel. He has led them through all kinds of different experiences, having come out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea, through all kinds of events and things that have shaped and challenged these people and drawn them near to God. And now he has this final message, and he's preparing them for what is next. He's preparing them for even a more challenging season of entering, entering into the promised land. As they're standing on the plains of Moab now, and they're about to enter in, and Moses is preparing them, and he has these messages, these last sermons for them as he gathers his people. And so Moses is standing before his people more so as a pastor than a lawgiver. In previous times, he's been more of a lawgiver of a person in front of these people as their leader, but now he comes more as a pastor, speaking to them plainly about what they are about to encounter and how they need to prepare. You know, I know for... For many people, they would see Deuteronomy as kind of an old, tired book that doesn't really have a lot of relevance for today. Kind of stale, kind of archaic, kind of boring. But really, it is quite the opposite as we get into the text and as you see the richness of what is spoken of there. In fact, when Paul, in the New Testament, speaks of Scripture and he talks about how Scripture is effective for instruction, instructing, rebu- rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness... Deuteronomy would have been very central on his mind at the time because that was their text, that was their scripture, that was what they understood and what he would have been thinking of as he said that. It's also the book that Jesus quotes the most, more than any other book. And one author says this about the book of Deuteronomy, the book points the reader to the Lord God who has redeemed his people and assigned them the mission of radiating his grace to the world. And so in the midst of that, You have Moses, their leader, who is now reminding them of a dark chapter in their history. And and he's bringing back this painful story, and he's retelling it. And he says, do you remember? Let's think about this. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we're going to look at starting in verse 7. And on the slide in front of you, you'll have verse 7 and 8, and then I want you to just listen to some of the remaining verses that follow right after that. As... 
Deuteronomy, just like Moses is speaking to the people, and it is meant to be heard and just to have it sweep over you and allow these words to speak to you. And if you know the story, to be reminded of the story. If the story is new to you, to hear it maybe even for the first time and to understand some of what is going on here. So it says this, Deuteronomy 9, verse 7. Remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord your God out in the wilderness from the day you left Egypt until now. You have been constantly rebelling against him. Quite a statement. Even at Mount Sinai, you made the Lord so angry he was ready to destroy you. So what's with this anger? What's what's going on here that God is so angry and that these people are so rebellious? And then Moses goes on and he tells this story and he recounts this chapter in their lives. And he says this, This happened when I was on the mountain receiving the tablets of stone inscribed with the words of the covenant that the Lord had made with you. I was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and all that time I ate no food and drank no water. The Lord gave me the two tablets on which God had written with his own finger all the words he had spoken to you from the heart of the fire when you were assembled at the mountain. At the end of the 40 days and nights, the Lord handed me the two stone tablets inscribed with the words of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, get up, go down immediately, for the, for the people that you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted gold and made an idol for themselves. The Lord also said to me, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Leave me alone so that I may destroy them and erase their name from under heaven. Then I will make a mighty nation of your descendants, a nation larger and more powerful than they are. So while the mountain was blazing with fire, I turned and came down, holding in my hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. And there before me I could see that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had melted gold and made a calf idol for yourselves. How quickly you had turned away from the path the Lord had commanded you to follow. So I took the stone tablets and I threw them to the ground, smashing them before your very eyes. It's quite a story. Quite remarkable how even now God, he is ready to exchange the people of Israel for another group of people. I'm done with these people. And he recounts the anger that God had and the anger even that Moses had at this time. Moses is recalling the story in Exodus chapter 32. If you go back, you'll see it recorded there in the original story in Exodus chapter 32 as it recounts this incident in greater detail even of what happened on that day when Moses went up the mountain. When God gave him the Ten Commandments and God established these people as a covenant people and all that that meant. This story is retold a number of times throughout Scripture. We read one of the places in Psalm 106. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, even when Stephen, just before he is stoned to death as a martyr, he is recalling the story of God and he includes this story in his telling in Acts chapter 7 because of the significance of it, because of how it relates to that early church at that time and what they were experiencing it. And it's a story that we do need to be reminded of and retell for our sakes as well. These people started so well. If you go back and you read Exodus chapter 24, you see that where this covenant was established with the people of Israel and Moses was leading these people and, and, and they declared their faithfulness. All the basic terms were revealed of this covenant relationship between God and these people. And it even says there, there's a quote, it says that all the people answered with one voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Everything. Quite a commitment. And Moses 
takes the blood and he sprinkles it over the people as this sign of this covenant commitment. Again, blood being used. And he sprinkles it upon these people. And then they have a meal together. They have this celebration meal together with the living God himself. And even some of the nobles of the people of Israel are invited to join that meal together with Moses there. And they they have this meal together that symbolizes this covenant. It's a celebration meal. That's in Exodus 24, but then in Exodus 32, you see this golden calf event that Moses is retelling now in Deuteronomy chapter 9. This dark history, this betrayal, this idolatry, and how quickly they break the covenant. I mean, Moses was up on the mountain just getting it actually written out for the very first time. It's like the ink was not even dry on the document. And already they had broken this covenant in incredible profane ways. of Putting this gold together and forming this calf and worshiping it. So God's anger burns against them. And he, he says even to Moses, these people that you brought out of Egypt. It's kind of interesting how he even puts it on Moses. And he's sort of distancing himself. God is. He says, these people that you brought out of Egypt now are doing this. And he says to Moses, he says, you know what? I want you to step aside I want to destroy these people. And how God even sees Moses as this intermediary, this intercessor who is there on behalf of his people. And we see that as we read, continue reading in verse 18 to 21. This astounding section of intercessory prayer. As Moses goes before God and pleads with God, he's just been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying on behalf of the people. And now God's anger burns and Moses sees what's happening. He goes back up to the mountain and he prays again on behalf of these people. Let's keep reading verse 18. Then as before, I threw myself down before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights again. I ate no bread and drank no water because of the great sin that you had committed by doing what the Lord hated, provoking him to anger. I feared that the furious anger of the Lord which turned him against you would drive him to destroy you. But again, he listened to me. The Lord was so angry with Aaron that he wanted to destroy him too. But I prayed for Aaron, and the Lord Lord spared him. I took your sin, the calf you made, and I melted it down in the fire. And I ground it into fine dust, and then I threw the dust into the stream that flows down the mountain. What an amazing couple of verses. This power of fervent prayer, of passionate prayer of Moses' pastor pleading on behalf of these sinful people as he fasted second time, went up and prayed on this mountain. And what a contrast to what was happening down below by the people. He pleaded with God, and it says that God listened. God responded. God extended grace. He didn't destroy the people. He prayed on behalf of Aaron, and God listened. God responded. God showed grace upon him as well. And it's like God even opens this door for intervention because he says, you know what, I want you to stand aside. It's like he knows that, that, that Moses is going to intervene on behalf of the people. Moses is going to come to him in prayer and request this. But what an amazing text of intercessory prayer. You know, as a leader, as a leader in the church today, this text challenges me and confronts me on so many levels. And I want to articulate just two for us this morning. And the first, 
the first place that this text challenges me is just this section on prayer that we just looked at and that we just saw as Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And it challenges me on the importance of prayer, the power of prayer, of how God invites prayer and how we are to pray bold prayers on behalf of others. And it challenges me because prayer is hard work. I think for most of us, prayer is a challenge. For some people who have the gift of prayer, they just can't wait. Let me add it. It gives them joy, breathes life. But for many people, I know that it is a challenging work of God. I know for me, as a, as a leader in the church, managing competing expectations to take time to have lingering prayer with God is a constant challenge. And sometimes even a source of guilt. Add fasting to that, and it only intensifies doesn't always feel useful, doesn't always feel practical, doesn't always feel like you're meeting real needs of people, if you know what I mean. Doesn't always sort of accomplish the necessary unending tasks that keep coming at you. And yet, prayer matters. God calls us to prayer. This text challenges us to prayer. Not just leaders, but all followers of Jesus Christ. All followers of Christ called to this kind of passionate and fervent prayer. We need to call out and release the intercessors in our church. But it's not just about the intercessors, those with that unique gifting, those with that unique calling. It's it's a call to every one of us to become more intentional people of prayer, to grow in this area and in this obedience to pray. Because God invites us to pray. He responds to our prayer. Are we people of prayer? Are we a church of prayer? Does it infuse our families and our gatherings and our conversations with other people? Does it consume much of our time as we gather in small groups? Does it consume us when we face issues of many kinds or do we just talk about them? Or do we pray and go to prayer? Passionate prayer, persistent prayer, agonizing prayer, prayer and fasting prayer, intercessory prayer on behalf of others for the sake of the church, for the sake of other people for the sake of our city, for our country, for the issues that we see around the world. You need to know that God is challenging me in this area. And as your pastor, I'm challenging you in this area. We need to challenge each other in this area. We need to become people of prayer, of fervent prayer, of persistent prayer, of passionate prayer of intercessory prayer. James 5, verse 16, it reminds us that when we confess our sins to each other and we pray for each other, even for healing, that the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Many of you have experienced that. I've experienced that. I've seen it. I've been part of it. And yet, why is it that we are so hesitant to pray? Why is it that we are so distracted from prayer? Second area. I said there's two areas of challenge in this text for us today, and I'll just talk about one other one. Second area. This whole need to reveal and to call out idols within the body, idols within the church, idols for Moses within the people of Israel. And for me, this is challenging and difficult for a whole number of reasons. First of all, because I sense and feel them rising up within me myself. I know that there's fertile soil within my heart 
that there are idols that seep in and creep into my life, whatever they may be, whether they are comfort, security, the status quo, whatever the case may be, complacency. Another reason that's challenging uh, to call out idols and to reveal idols is that it's often said that a church over time eventually starts to reflect its pastor. That unsettles me. I wonder, is that true? Sometimes I say, I hope not. Another reason that it challenges me is that we like to be nice. We like to have people like us. Okay, some of you don't have that burden. Some of you don't really care what people think. I like to be nice. I like people to like me. That's part of my nature. And yet it seems to me that we have... At times, we have lost our first love. Of Jesus Christ. In my reflective moments, I sometimes wonder, have I? But if this is true, if we've slowly, subtly allowed other things to replace the passionate pursuit of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then we need to recognize that we are idolaters. That we too need to repent and embrace God's grace and mercy. Moses, when he called the people to trust and believe, in the promise of God, of entering this promised land. He saw that they shrunk back. They complained in their tents, and they didn't do anything. And the judgment of God that came upon them for that. Now Moses goes up on the mountain, and these people get impatient, and they lose faith in their Moses, and they lose faith in what God is going to do, and they say, you know what? Let's just make an idol in our own image and worship something tangible. And again, we don't have idols quite of that nature. And again, for us, they are much more subtle. We might be people who love the Bible. We love the Word of God so much. How can there be anything wrong with that? Of course, there's not. But then slowly what creeps in, certain theological perspectives, certain theological priorities start to be the dominant thing that Bible is all about to us. And that theological perspective becomes our idol more than God himself. We might be in a small group. We love our small group. Our small group, we might say, is great. We are community. We're tight. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We do life together. But then eventually, slowly over time, we start to lose sight of the mission of God within our small group. And it all becomes about community. And community becomes our idol. Maybe we love our church and we love its history. We love the way things were. We don't like change. We love comfort, similar, familiar, status quo. Other things slowly become our idols. Or maybe we love our corporate worship gathering. Or at least maybe it's a certain expression of our corporate worship gathering. And it's good to gather together as we do here. But maybe it becomes more about coming to church than it is about being the church. And it shows up in all kinds of different ways, whether it's grumbling, complaining, 
about things that are too loud, too quiet, too contemporary, too traditional. If it's not worship wars, maybe it's preaching wars or announcement wars or what we wear wars. Take your pick. They're subtle, but they reveal idols in our lives. Sadly, this is too much the history of the church. And at times, the modern condition of the church in general and prevalent too much even at times in our church as well. It's called idolatry. It's called sin. And God hates it. I find it interesting how God through Moses continually calls his people forward. He always calls them forward. He says, I have a new land I want to show you. I have new places that you're going to go. New people that you will discover. New opportunities that you'll be able to embrace. But new challenges that you will face. And it will not be easy. And what strikes me as I read this account in Deuteronomy is that the only time that God calls the people to go back is when they have sinned at Kadesh Barnea and he says, return to the Red Sea, we're done. And it's 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. God continually calls his church forward. God continually calls for change, for a new future that is unknown, that is uncertain, that is going to be very different than anything that you've experienced previously. I see that in Genesis, in creation. In the creation story, it begins with two people in the garden. And then you go through all of Scripture, and it ends up in Revelation in an amazing city with people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all nationalities, praising the living God in a city. This picture of God continually calling us forward to something very different. Our church, too, needs to continue to move forward. And I can promise you that we will be very different five years from now. Because we need to be. Not that the content changes, not that the message changes, the gospel stays the same, but the structures, the programs, the systems, all those things need to move forward in very different ways. And so, as your pastor, what we need to do is we need to confess our idolatry. Tim Keller, he talks about the fact that our idols can't just be removed, but they need to be replaced. They need to be replaced by God's Spirit, by more of God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Today is Pentecost Sunday. If you look in Acts chapter 2 at that Pentecost day and all that happened there, what an amazing, glorious, disorienting, confusing day that changed everything and blew up all kinds of idols. And it began with this declarations of what God has done and the faithfulness of God through the generations. And it had stories of healings and baptisms and extravagant generosity, unlike anything that they had ever seen before. But it began with praise and repentance. That was their response. This desire for more of God the Father, more of God the Son, more of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we have those things, that is the only thing that can replace the idols of our lives. It squeezes out any room for anything else. Do you hunger for more of God? May we too respond in kind. 
that we don't need to live controlled by our idols, but that we can embrace the grace and the power of God and the freedom that is found in him. That's my prayer. I would invite you to stand as I read a closing text that I want to read, and then we will pray together. This text that I I want to read is found in uh, Titus chapter 3. And in Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to this young leader, Titus, and to the church that he is serving there, and he is reminding them of their sinfulness and their past, and he's telling them of the glory of God's grace and transformation that can occur. And just like the people of Israel who could only enter into the promised land because of the grace of God and the call of God in their lives, not by anything that they had done, but by whose they were. The same is true for us. This promise is true for us. And so as we come into the New Testament and we read this text, here's what it says. It says, Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of envy and evil, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is the transformation that occurs when we allow and we invite more of God in our lives, in our midst, to replace our petty idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a holy God. And Lord, we just confess that so often we forget your holiness. And we forget the aspects of your character that have been reminded to us in this series in Deuteronomy about your judgment. And that is only because of your grace that we are free. Thank you, Lord, that we can live victorious lives, that we can live free of sin and free from idols because of your grace and because of the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, even on this Pentecost Sunday, we just ask for more of you. We ask for more of the power of your Holy Spirit in our midst, in our hearts, in our church. And God, we just confess that oftentimes we like to control in whatever way that that looks like. And yet when your Holy Spirit comes in and you're breaking into a people, so much is not so easily controlled. And Father, I pray that you would help us to move forward in our faith. And Father, that we would remember our past for the sake of giving thanks to you and reminding ourselves of your faithfulness. But that we will not be fearful of the future because you hold the future in your hands and you continually call us forward. May we walk in obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.